This is episode 44 of the Immunology Podcast, the innate immune system with Dr. Miriam Murad. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rad. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. A quick note about our upcoming schedule. It's our last episode before the holidays, as we will be taking a short and much needed break. But don't worry, because we'll be back on Tuesday, January 17th with a brand new episode. Today, we have Dr. Miriam Murad from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai on the podcast to talk about her research, harnessing our understanding of the innate immune system to develop novel therapeutics against cancer and inflammatory diseases. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and immunology news coming up. But first, early bird registration for Immunology 2023 is open. The annual meeting of the American Association of Immunologists is taking place from May 11 to May 15 in Washington, D.C. Register by March 31, 2023 to take advantage of the special discount rate. Visit www.immunology2023.org for more information. It's that time. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Do you know the game Whamageddon, apparently, where you're supposed to not listen to hear the song from Wham of some form? And if you do, if you survive it, you go to, you know, you, you win. It's some mm-hmm. Christmas song. It's like an American thing where you try not to listen. I, the thing is, I always win because I don't know what the song is. I was about to say, I don't know what you're talking about. It's some Christmas, really common Christmas song that's on the radio. And when you go to the mall all the time and it's by Wham and it's a whole game called Whamageddon. And if you lose wow. and hear the song, you go to Whamhalla. Oh wow! Yeah. I only know I only know the Mariah Carey song for Christmas. That's that's basically, <laughs> oh, that's and that one is really hard to escape if you it want. It is. It is. That, that one's that's impossible. Really the Trans Siberian Orchestra. I love uh, Carol of the Bells. I'll I'll give that one some props, but that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's still it's it's still nice, you know. I think December is the best winter month if you ask me because january is gonna be tough you know here in europe they're almost they decorate you know the the streets very nicely and especially the pedestrian streets are super cute the the towns do that a little bit here although i just i don't know i christmas starts extending even earlier now and i'm like can we have that can we just agree it starts after thanksgiving for the music please but yeah are you doing anything for holidays going anywhere gonna go to like to ski chalet or anything well, I wish, uh, but uh, no, well, not too far, actually. I, as this podcast has been uh, released, I with my mother in the mountains in the north of Spain, hopefully with some uh, some snow. The north of Spain was snow. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. What did oh. you think? All of Spain is Mallorca? But of course. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what, 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 uh, what winter brings. I don't get any fun winter plans. Uh, work work is a little extra crazy. So I'm just working. But I get to dress uh, up and do my whole LARP Dragon Thrones thing in uh, January. So that'll be good. Okay. I'm a pirate okay. this time. Then just hold on to the happy thoughts All of future rewards. All the happy thoughts of future piracy. <laughs> All right. Well, getting into it, um, check out this segue. I'm going to talk about a cryo-EM structure that's a raft and pirates use rafts. There you go. Flawless. 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 Please. <laughs> All right. So the first paper I'll talk about is in Nature. It came out on uh, 28th of November as an accelerated print. 
Uh, it is called Cryo EM Structures of the Active NLRP3 Inflammasome Disc. It's uh, Li Zhao is the first author, and the last author is Hao Wu. Uh, this is a structure paper, so trying to describe you know, protein structure on an audio podcast is a bit hard. I'm sure on Twitter or elsewhere, we will post some pretty cool pictures like we usually do of the papers. But that being said, what I can kind of give it a high level here is they've been trying to understand, you know, so, so take a step back. Some various complexes are hard to crystallize and do crystal structures of for obvious reasons, especially the more complex ones that are multi, um, oligomer right or multiple of the same you know you can get a cross structure of two or three or four of the same protein oligomerized together but when you have a hetero dimer or hetero trimer or multiple units coming together it gets harder um and that's one of the cool things about cryo em is that instead of requiring a crystal structure that's perfectly crystallized right so to have protein crystallized it has to be completely ordered and any disorder is bad news for getting that diffraction pattern EM is a little more tolerant of that. So it's going to take these proteins and it's okay if each individual protein is disordered because what it does is it puts the protein on an array and it's going to be at all these different angles and you're going to get all these uh, X-ray or not X-ray, but electron shots of it, right? So electron microscopy pictures of it. And then that's computer reassembled into a 3D picture. So you want, you know, 360 views of everything and each molecule disorder. You just want it pure and have the same thing in each shot, right? So you don't want one protein doing one thing and another doing another, or you don't want too many of those because I'll throw them out when you build the model, it's okay. But if you have like eight confirmations, it'll have a problem. But if you can get the one protein to have the same confirmation, all of it, you're just gonna get a bunch of different pictures. So you don't have to crystallize it. And so you don't have to have that same level of difficulty of generating a crystal structure that can diffract. Then you have to redo it and redope it to solve the phase problem. And so then you have to put in these heavy ions and that can affect protein expression. You got to do it again. You got to get a second set of shots that look just as good as the first and do the phase subtraction. And it's just hell on wheels. So cryo EMs really come a long way and been able to solve a lot of structures they have been able to do before. It's not as quite good resolution. For example, instead of being three or two angstrom, this is five angstrom resolution, but they are able to crystallize the NLRP inflammasome, so one of our inflammasomes. And you know some really cool stuff about it. It makes this wheel, it's a multimeric protein. In this case, the, the picture they have has eight in here. And then they have this ASC adapter as well that has to come on, it kind of like makes a mushroom bottom. So if you kind of imagine NLRP is a, a, a mushroom top, but flat, and with the lobes coming on the outside, then there's a bottom adapter as well that comes in. So it's pretty neat to see them build this. And they, they show that you have to have the neck, which is another adapter protein is not used in the final structure, but the ASC protein is part of the inflammasome concept it uh, is. And then they show that this region at the C terminal called LLR interacts with neck is inhibitory. And so when it's active, it's not there. The other thing they do is they show that you have to have ATP. So they use ATP gamma S, which can't be hydrolyzed. And that's required to make the active form. So they're able to actually get an active form of the protein for the first time and then show kind of the important parts of the structure. And then they go in and find some residues they think are going to be important for these interactions. And then they mutate those and show that in that's cases in then say cells, uh, that the mutation 
inhibits the function of the inflammasome, right? So you can show that knocking out it based on the structure gives you the structure function relationship you expect. And they also then find other residues that are associated with hyperactivation of the inflammasome, where they think that auto activates without needing the ATP. Um, those mutations are known in people. So they can now see where those mutations are in people that have this hyperactive inflammasome state. And they can see that, that probably based on what they've seen now with the structure, it lets it activate without ATP present. And so if you are interested in NLRP biology, and this protein has some very specific, unique domains in it compared to some other NLRPs, uh, this is a great paper for really understanding that structure function relationship. And I think it shows another a level of where we're getting with cryo EM because they had to do some pretty classy protein purification and then, you know, so purify it with a tag and cleave the tag off and do all these things and then mix some stuff together. And they were able to nail all of that. So like the EM at the end is probably 30% of all the work that they had to do to get there. And it's 70% is getting the protein purified, but it's pretty cool in terms of like trying to see the structure. And they show this, this FISNA domain is really unique and is part of this to NLRP3 and it's part of the um, main conformational change that occurs to make it active. So it's, it's more of a paper to read and look at than just talk about, but it's, it's taught off the press and in nature because they got a very difficult to get structure. You don't get a lot of structure papers in nature anymore. And this one you did, you, you know, the, the nature structural biology or something, but this is one of those whales that they've been hunting for. Yeah, I think we've seen a couple of these cryo-EM papers in which they have achieved to really present a very difficult protein and and, and look into the, the 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 structure in a way that had never been uh, done before. I think we presented was it on the was it a beta the beta receptor. How much did we actually know, or was there any type of crystal structure available for NL bar pre three? I don't think so. I don't think they've ever been, they have, they have, sorry, inactivated ones where it's just the single protein, but uh, it doesn't okay. make the complex and activate and they couldn't get that. And they had to add adapters in. So they have, they talk about crystal structures that existed ahead of time, but in inactive conformation. Right. And are there like regions that are harder, like they have more movement or stuff like that and they're harder to characterize or have they yes. been Yes. And so it's easier to characterize in cryo EM because those will just be blurry and variable sources portions of the crystal structure. If it's floppy, whereas in right. crystallography, you're just done. You can't right. get the crystal because it's too floppy. And then the other difference is NMR is a third mechanism for doing structure. But in uh that case, it only works with small proteins. If it gets too big, it won't work. So I so think NMR is nuclear magnetic resonance. resonance. Right. So you typically used in organic chemistry, but you can do NMR structure and NMR structure dynamics. But the rate limiter for that is like, I think, 40 to 50 kilodaltons, if I remember right, at this point. Quite small. Whereas bigger things are even better for EM. And so mm -hmm. a big giant complex of eight of the same protein, which I don't know how many kilodaltons it is, but even if it was like 20 a pop, times eight is 160. So big complexes they like for, for okay. cryo-EM. So big, hard to crystallize complexes or membrane bound things because they can make a membrane disc and then yeah. put the, you know, so that's how they're getting these GPCRs that they couldn't do before. And they can also do that with NMR as well. So you can, there, there's a couple people um, that can do NMR on membrane bound proteins, but those aren't very amiable to crystallography because it's hard to crystallize a lipid. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Wow. How well, I guess cryoEM has been such a revolution in our understanding of small structures, things like that. Super cool. Okay. 
talking about revolutions that are, well, not very revolutionary. I'm going to talk about a vaccine that is 100 years old now. Uh, that is the BCG vaccine. The What is the, the name of these two French, two French names? The Calmet-Guerin uh, vaccine that has been used for a really, really long time to protect mostly children from severe uh, uh, tuberculosis. Uh, but we know that it's not really good at protecting um, grown-ups from actual pulmonary disease. Do you, do you, Jason, do, did you get the BCG vaccination or did your children get BCG vaccination in the U.S.? Oh, no, not at all. No one ever. Not a, that is so weird. Well, that's, you know, I have two BCG vaccinations and you can see the scars on my arm. And that's a very funny thing because you can tell when a person comes from like, I don't want to say third world country because that is an outdated term, but like a developing country because they will, you will find one or two large scars on their mostly left arm uh, that are because of the VCG vaccination and makes a really big postule. Uh, and we're still, babies in Argentina are still vaccinated uh, with VCG in their first, I think, six weeks of age, but we don't get the, the a second, we don't get any second vaccination at the age of six, which I did get. It's very, it's very, very nasty vaccination. So not even you. Interesting. All right. So the, the paper is called Parenteral uh, VCG Vaccine Induces Lung Resident Memory Macrophages and Trained Immunity via the Gut-Lung Axis. You're going to like this story. Uh, first author, Mangala Kurmari Yeyanathan from the lab of Shaoxing at McMaster University in Canada. Uh, it was published in Nature Immunology. So as I mentioned, BCG uh, uh, is a subcutaneous vaccination that, um, well, is also very studied. I think especially at the beginning of COVID, there was this idea that uh, the trained immunity that BCG seems to confer could actually also protect against other respiratory diseases such as COVID. So there was this idea that maybe uh, people that had been vaccinated with BCG had some kind of advantage against COVID. I don't sure. So we actually had a, a, one of our guests at the podcast were discussing, we were discussing this with him, but I'm not sure what is the current understanding of that. In any case, in this paper, they're looking into mouse models um, and they want to understand the effect on alveolar macrophages by, from BCG vaccination. And alveolar macrophages are special cells because those are macrophages that are derived from uh, fetal monocytes and they populate the alveoli of the lungs shortly after birth. And then they, they are there, they kind of, they set shop and they persist and they self-renew. So they're not the same as macrophages from monocytes. And uh, what they're in this in this study, what they did is basically they looked into how the population of alveolar macrophages is affected and whether they you can observe the, the kind of trained immunity, you can see some kind of changes in the alveolar macrophages as a consequence of VCG vaccination. So they did have they, they, the paper is really extensive, and I have to say it's a, it's a very interesting piece of work. So I'm gonna try to keep it uh, kind of high level. What they basically they do is that so they um, they vaccinate mice with VCG and then after five weeks they look into their alveolar macrophages and they do see 
that um, there are specific changes in the alveolar macrophages that suggest an activation. And um, they express higher levels, so MH equals 2, TLR2, the IL-6, TNF-alpha upon activation. So they seem to be different. These macrophages seem to respond to the BCG vaccination. Interestingly, uh, they also observe uh, meta metabolic mo modifications of the macrophage, and particularly a tendency towards increased glycolysis, which has been associated with a kind of activated macrophages and upper inflammatory uh, macrophages. This effect peaks at five weeks after vaccination, and it's really not clear, like two weeks after, it seems too early. Uh, so this does take a little while to set in. Um, and when they look into peritoneal macrophages, they also see changes there. So they see that this uh, subcutaneous vaccination has very kind of far-reaching effects on macrophages throughout the mouse. They do also, you know, typical transcriptomic analysis. Again, they 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 see that this, these macrophages are being activated and show signs of trained immunity. Uh, and this is different to what they see if they vaccinate mice with a heat inactivated VCG, so VCG that doesn't grow, that is basically dead, or if they have adenoviral kind of nasal vaccination. If you have like a viral vaccination, it's a different thing. When it comes to this, uh, this alveolar macrophages, they actually so they they show this this these modifications in their phenotype, but they also become better at, for example, uh, presenting antigen to CD4 T cells. Uh, they they are better at uh, helping the mice. They're better at managing in vitro uh, MTB. Well, they do they infect these macrophages with MTB, and they also see that they are better at controlling the infection. And when it comes to in vivo experiments, uh, mice that are, of course, um, that, that are uh, vaccinated with BCG, they do better when it comes to my, uh, MTB infection, but particularly they do better in the early stages and they have a lower CFU in the, in the lung. They are quicker to activate CD4 T cells and uh, in, in the, uh, that are mycobacteria specific in the lung. And interestingly, this advantage that they see seems to actually be largely T-cell independent. So, and that's why they really focus on the idea of this, of a increased trained immunity, innate uh, trained immunity uh, in the in the alveolar macrophages. That is independent of recruitment of monocytes from the circulation, because they show that if, if monocytes cannot enter the lungs, they still see the advantage. There's something specific about macrophages that are resident in the lungs. And here's where you're going to like the story, because what they eventually show is that BCG basically triggers a colitis, short colitis, that it's like not visible at two weeks, peaks at five weeks, and it's gone by eight weeks. And this colitis, yeah, I see, I see your face, your interested face. They uh, triggers a change in the in the microbiome of the of, of the mice, and particularly the metabolome of the gut, the serum, and the lungs of the mice. And so this they they also show that VCG is multiplying. And it's kind of uh, colonizing parts of like the, the periphery of the, of the gut. And they think that this colonization is what generates the, the colitis and the changes that they see. So basically, they, they end up kind of finding out that 
these metabolic changes uh, result in certain uh, metabolites, particularly those uh, that are um, related to the arginine metabolic pathway that end up changing, uh, re being reflected in the serum and in the lungs. And this favors epigenetic modifications on the alveolar macrophages that initiate trained immunity. And they can even kind of mimic this effect and mimic this epigenetic remodeling of alveolar macrophages by simply introducing, they have a mix of L-carnitine and butyrate, uh, and they give this in the drinking water of mice, and they can partially re-enact uh, or kind of uh, reflect the these uh, these changes and this activation, this trained uh, innate trained immunity and uh, of alveolar macrophages in the mice. So, in general, so in conclusion, what they see is they see VCG vaccination uh, goes to the gut. In the gut, the generates dysbiosis, colitis. This generates a change in metabolome, and this all the, goes all the way to the lungs and modifies the. Uh, the status of the alveolar macrophages that are already residing within the lung. And that's how you can, the kind of generates a direct effect on the lung mucosa uh, from a subcutaneous uh, vaccination. And it's permanent, right? Like, like this change then persists afterwards. So the, the trained immunity seems to, yes. Uh, the colitis is, is just um, they 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 go back to normal at eight weeks. Very interesting. I think that it's interesting. We've been using this for how long, and we're still learning what it does. Yeah, I mean, BCG has been, of course, associated with reduce uh, disease overall. Like, like it does. It is known also in humans that it provides protection against unrelated diseases. I think that's super interesting. It is. It is very interesting and weird. Yeah. Weird. Good beer, not bad. Don't you feel bad you don't have it? No, because it, mess, it causes colitis, and I don't need any more of that. Now. <laughs> True. All right. Well, I don't have a segue here other than inflammation, immunology. I got now. We're, we're talking T regs, which stop colitis. So there we go. There's my segue. Um, I'm grasping at straws here. All right. So low dose IL-2 reduces IL-21 T cell frequency and induces anti-inflammatory gene expression in type 1 diabetes. First author is Jia Yang Zhang, and last author is Ricardo C. Fiera and John A. Todd. It comes out in Nature Communications now, uh, published 28th of November. So this paper is actually a follow-up to a clinical trial where they're looking at low-dose IL-2. The idea of the original trial is that low-dose IL-2 reduces inflammatory states it's kind of a paradoxical reaction to high-dose IL-2. But if you know anything about signaling, sometimes low-dose signaling and high-dose signaling have opposite effects on receptors. For GPCRs, this is class switching. I don't know the mechanisms besides other ones, but class switching is, say, where a G-protein couple receptor that's stimulatory or alpha-S flips to inhibitory alpha-I or vice versa, and I think other receptors may have some of this as well, but I, I actually don't know how they would flip. Um, but it's very common in GPCRs for there to be a dual modality. Um, so that being said, this is all about IL-2. 
So we're taking low-dose IL-2 for um, type 1 diabetes. And they basically, this is the follow-up to the previous trial, um, which was an adaptive single-dose observational study to then really look at the mechanism of action. So the, the high-level version of this is it induces and maintains higher levels of CD4 high, CD120 seven low CD25 high T cells and the CD56 B and uh, K cells. That being said, it seems they, they, they ferret down the pathway and then take blood samples and, and do in vitro work too, and really demonstrate that they, this bumps the, this Iolodose IL-2 bumps the T reg component up. Um, but doesn't alter natural and K cells at all it um and then downstream they look at single cell rna sequencing and understand what happens with the cells and show that it's pumping out general anti-inflammatory cytokines um, they look at the frequency of proliferation and see that it does seem to drive some level of proliferation then they talk about how previous data with ki67 protein doesn't quite match what they see with rna that being a proliferation marker that's because the protein persists a lot longer than a single cell cycle and so they're, that they clock it up, to, they, they chalk it up to that, that the, the, the clock sync is off between the two of them. And then they say it really, and I don't actually remember what Helios means, but it really, this IL-2 low dose increases these FOXP3 Helios positive Tregs, and that those in turn suppress um, IL-21 producing T cells, these T follicular IL-21 cells. Um, go down and then there's less inflammatory l21 so somehow and they do they can't quite figure out and they look at other cells as well and don't find a huge difference in it, they find a little bit of decreased frequency of cd8 mate like cells um but they, the dominant signal they can really get from the whole thing is this is this il21 modality and it persists um you know, they're, they're doing this 27 days out and it's persisting and it persists even as far as day 55 into the treatment. So they're really trying to understand the mechanism of action of the existing treatment that they're trying to work on clinically because, you know, if you're going to develop a drug, you kind of have to have some level of mechanism of action and we know what you're targeting so that when you do your next phases of your trial, you can add this as a biomarker mm -hmm. to know if you have efficacy. And they've really been identified that you know, this increase in this, you know, the Treg population and the decrease in the IL-21 producing T cells seem to be the big ones. And they, again, they talk about a little bit of innate like CD8 mate cells going down. Um, but they, they don't have as much information on that as the other work. So basically low dose IL-2 has the opposite effect. It's anti-inflammatory through inducing Tregs. And so they finally were able to kind of ping the mechanism that it's about Tregs. And then from there, um, that, that T ring then drops IL-21. I mean, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Uh, IL I think low-dose IL-2 has been already for a, no for a while known to induce regulatory T cells because they have the CD25 uh, receptor that has a very high affinity uh, for IL-2. So the IL-2-alpha, receptor alpha subunit, which is very highly expressed on all types of T-Rex, they are really good at picking up IL-2, even at the lower doses. 
Right. Whereas so IL-2 guess- receptor may not. Right, because often IL-2 receptor present in CD8 cells, especially when they're not activated, is less, it has a lower affinity. So you need higher amounts of IL-2 to really activate the CD8 cells on top of the of the T-Rex. But I think what's interesting, I think what is now not super clear was the IL-21 part. Um, yeah, they don't that, really get at how it's happening, just that it's associated here because it's human data, right? It's hard to do mechanisms. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting. So maybe this isn't a case of a receptor switching. It's just an example of preferential receptor binding. And so CD25 has a much lower or tighter affinity. Yeah. IL-2. And so it's selectively at lower doses hitting one versus the other. Or not. Who knows? Maybe maybe CD25 has a different downstream adapter arms, which I'm sure it does, right? But like, how how is that driving the signaling is an interesting question. Yeah, I think it's mostly an affinity situation. So that's definitely, definitely T-Rex have a very high, a receptor that has a very high affinity for IL-2. And, and we know that people are trying to like have IL-2s that are uh, either, you know, in a way selective to which uh, IL-2 receptor because IL-2 receptor has slightly different combinations of, of subunits and then they are pressing slightly different, but to some extent, overlapping cell subsets, um, but it is it is interesting that that they 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 find a little bit more about the mechanism. Yeah, I I, I there's there's more questions here, but we'll have to jump on. But I, I do wonder, like, then if you pound T regs with lots of IL two, is that deliberately then it goes up even more, or then does it turn off under higher signaling? Uh, I, I don't think so. So they just take it. They just, they don't downregulate IL-20, if TD-25, T-Rex. But do they, does the chronic on state cause an intracellular change in what the cell's doing versus like the lower dose high affinity where it comes on and off? Uh, other receptors will do that. Where like, if you just sit bound downstream on the inside of the cell, it changes what it's doing over time. I don't, I don't think it's the case of IL-2 receptor. Um, yeah. No. No, and it's and for T Rex is super. It's like from the beginning of their their genesis in the thymus, they depend on IL twenty five, uh, sorry, IL two uh, signaling to differentiate into T Rex. So there's some really cool data um, from the lab of Alexander Rudensky, in which they show that early CD twenty five upregulation due to recognition of cell antigen in the thymus already initiates the regulatory T cell program early on in the thymus and also they're looking here they're also looking into thymus they have this helios marker they use it to differentiate uh, t-rex that are from the thymus uh I, in contrast to potentially peripherally the uh, um, differentiated t-rex uh so i guess that's why they're using helios in in this in, in this um in their analysis here too interesting all right. Okay, but you know what? We're going to keep talking about IL-2 because I also have an IL-2-related uh, story for you. Um, this big birth was published in Science Immunology, so we have another nice, impactful story. Uh, IL-2 is inactivated by the acidic pH environment of tumors, enabling engineering of a pH-selected mutane First authors Silvia Gaguero and Jonathan Martinez Fabregas from the labs of collaboration from the labs of Ra- Rahul Roy Chor- 
Roy Chaudhuri from Cambridge, Ignacio Moranga from the University of Dundee, and Suman Mitra from the University of Lille uh, in France. And I think this is a very interesting story because it really makes you think sometimes that you, I think it's easy to kind of forget the cytokines. I mean, we, we add them to our cultures, we use them, you get very used to just, you know, shoving them to yourself. And sometimes we forget that cytokines are biological products that have very specific working conditions, so to say, and then they can be very sensitive to their environment. And this is an example I think is really, really interesting. Basically, what they show is that IL-2 and the interaction of IL-2 with CD25, which is the IL-2 receptor of a subunit, really uh, is different at lower pHs. And so there is a uh, kind of the, the physiological pH around 6.5, 7. And if you have more acidic conditions, IL-2 does not uh, signal so well and does not induce the very important STAT-5 activation, which is one of the hallmarks of IL-2 signaling. Um, so they, they show this. Uh, they use a lot of in vitro models in which they, they show that really there is a very specific downregulation of STAT-5 activation uh, when interleukin-2 is binding to its receptor at lower pH. And they do a really nice job at kind of identifying and characterizing the interface and showing that there's some particular residues that at this low pH become as uh, pro protonated and this disrupts the normal uh, interface uh, between the cytokine and its receptor. I think they mention a, a cysteine that is kind of seems to be really critical. And, and this is very interesting because in the case of tumors, when you think about tumors are known, solid tumors are known for uh, generating an acidic environment. They often have very um, altered metabolism. They often secrete a lot of lactic acid to the environment. And this results in a reduction of the pH. And, and this can then, if you know, you know that IL-2 has issues at lower pH. This might be one of the reasons why T cells have have been problems uh, have problems with their activation at this in this environment because it might be the lower pH that is uh, depleting one of the very important activation signals, which is IL two. And so what they do is they generate through uh, directive evolution of uh, they test a lot of mutation like mutants. Uh, mutant variants of IL-2, and they have a in vitro uh, model in which they can kind of try to um, select for variants of IL-2 that actually bind to the receptor at low pH. And so they have a, a system in which they are, um, they have an IL-2 library, mutant library, and then they are using a receptor tetramer to pick the, pick up and identify those, those mutants that have higher affinity. And they've come up with one particular, which they call switch two. And they, they show that this switch two mutant of IL-2 can bind uh, to, IL to the IL-2 receptor at low pH. Interestingly, it's kind of a trade-off 
it does well at low pH, but it doesn't do very well at higher pH, at like physiological pH. It only works well when the pH is low. Uh, so I think around pH six versus pH uh, seven. Um, and so they show, so they, they look a lot into the, into the understanding the interface, which are the amino acid residues that are part of this, of this, of this interface and how they are affecting the binding at different pH. So very interesting for any biochemists out there or structural biologists. But what I find very interesting myself is that then they try to switch to IL-2 in a mouse model, a tumor model, and they actually see that it performs a lot better uh, as a in high. So in this case, you're using high dose IL-2 to, to um, activate T cells in the tumor. Um, and they actually show that this they, it does much better at, at this. Um, and because it actually doesn't work that well at physiological pH, it seems to have less kind of off tumor effects because it's not so strong at inducing IL-2 and, 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 and uh, at binding to IL-2 receptors outside of the acidic environment of the tumor, which reduces the off the kind of the secondary effects of high dose IL-2, which is nowadays a huge limiting factor for the use of high dose IL-2 as an anti-tumor uh, therapy. So you cannot treat patients, get uh, horrible side effects from the, from the treatment. So in, in, in general, so they, they, they do a lot of work in that sense, showing what, that they can uh, actually, also in the case of, of mice models, they can uh, improve the, the response using this IL-2 uh, with, with a reduced uh, systemic toxicity uh, upon this therapy. So I thought it was always very interesting, this idea of like looking closely at your cytokines and what they're doing, considering that we know for a fact that tumors have a more acidic pH and how they kind of went around this and found an, an alternative, which might be very promising uh, as an alternative to traditional IL-2 treatment. This is interesting, modified IL-2. And, and they, they think the binding of the, the mutine is perfectly functional. At low pH, yes, they can they can induce like STAT five activation. Uh, yeah, at low but, pH. but I wonder what happens at less low pH if it's if it's which is the major downstream um, pathway from IL two receptor. Right. So so they can mutate it, and it works in low pH, and it's just fine at more regular pH. Anyways, you're not screwing it up too much. I mean, no, it works less. Works regular less, pH, which is good was, since it won't be outside of the tumor, but not off, obviously, because then it's yeah. not gonna. Huh. It's kind of so, cool, so, huh? So modified modified IL two. No, that's really neat. Yeah. So today's theme is clearly IL two. Yeah, yeah. We finish on a high note. Also, I have to say, I this completely unrelated, but I wanted to mention, I got help to prepare the papers for today. You know, I actually. Did you did you see all this uh, open AI chatbot that they have been people have been talking about on Twitter and like all over the place? This oh yeah, chat GPT thing. So I actually in, like added the abstracts and the introduction of the papers, and I asked them to like synthesize the most important points. It was very interesting how did, it did, did it get it right. Actually, it did pretty well. It was like. As if like an undergrad student would have done it for like give it to an undergrad student, better than I expected. However, 
However, I also, I got excited. I was like, oh my God, this is going to revolutionize my research. I'm going to be, I'm going to be so quick. I want to do this amazing reviews now because it's going to be so easy. So I actually asked the, 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 the bot to get some clinical trials on some of the topics I'm interested. And you, you know what it did? It made up clinical trials. Like it gave me names of clinical trials with, um, clinical trial.gov like numbers, but those numbers did not belong to any trial. <laughs> if you actually look them in the in the website from clinicaltrials.gov. Just made some up for you. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't had academic integrity yet. Yeah. What a sneaky little thing. So I was a little bit disappointed. I thought this was going to be, I was going to start doing half of my job, but apparently not. Uh, but it did help, uh, you know, synthesizing uh the papers for me so that's that's a start crazy i I got nothing there all right i don't even have a segue the robots are to take over the world but before the robots take over the world we are going to be speaking with dr miriam merrim at the ican school of medicine at mount sinai in just a moment but of course before we get to that we want to remind you that stem cell technologies has amazing wall charts for you to hang up on your lab You can get all types of a variety of interesting immunology topics, including a snapshot of COVID-19, everyone's favorite pathogen, an overview of antigen processing and presentation, and much more. Explore all of the immunology wall charts and order your free copy at stemcell.com slash immunology wall chart. Hi, everyone. Joining us today in the podcast is Dr. Miriam Merat. She is the Director of Precision Immunology at the uh, Institute at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Um, And I'm very excited to talk to her because Dr. Marat's uh, work has been instrumental in our understanding, particularly of tissue-resident dendritic cells and macrophages, their origins. Um, so I'm very happy that she's with us today. So welcome to the Immunology Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you uh, for being here. All right, Brenda, you you you're, you got the enthused smile going. So why don't you go for it? <laughs> why don't we start a little bit back in time? Uh, because I think it's 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 fascinating. Your lab was the first one to identify, amongst others, so amongst other contributions, scientific contributions, to identify tissue resident macrophages uh, as opposed to monocyte derived macrophages. And I think that nowadays we kind of take that for granted. We just discussed in the paper roundup of yellow macrophages, for example. Uh, but we didn't always know this, this idea that some of the macrophages just come there, are there from the beginning, and they're just uh, resident in the tissue, uh, similarly to other cells. So I, I would like to maybe start for those of us who are just not very knowledgeable about what is our current understanding of where macrophages come from, what are they doing, and maybe also a little bit about dendritic cells, because can be so complicated to keep track of all the subsets and their origins. I will tell you one deal about the history of this beautiful story of, uh, uh, of how scientific um, inquiry can, can really transform um, dogma, right? Uh, so, um, so, so the dogma at, at that time was that macrophage and dendritic cells, when I joined the field, which was... Uh, um, I think in 1998, right? This is where I started my my PhD. In fact, Stanford after finishing residency in medical oncology in Paris. Uh, the dogma at that time was that these dendritic cells and macrophages um, 
which I, I was very interested in because of their role in indigenous presentation, these cells came uh, uh, or derived from circulating monocytes. And that was that, right? And uh, but, but there was very, very little uh, data that suggested that was the case. So now fast forward uh, 20, almost 20 years later, uh, the really the, the, the understanding of the ontogeny and origin of the cells had significantly expanded and changed. So it's first in terms of dendritic cells, in fact, dendritic cells uh, uh, are not as complex as, as we think. And I'm going to summarize them here for you. There is uh, two subsets that we should care about, a subset that's called DC1 and DC2. These two subsets are present in all tissue, non-lymphoid tissue and lymphoid organs. They arise from DC-restricted precursors that in, in the bone marrow, and these DC-restricted precursors come from myeloid progenitor, and the engagement into this DC-restricted lineage is dependent on, on, on a growth factor, an important growth factor called flat-free ligand that is produced in the bone marrow, and really pushing that flat-free signaling promotes myeloid engagement in the DC lineage and commitment to that lineage. You know, this is how you progress in hematopoiesis. You reduce your ability to differentiate into one lineage, acquire the ability to differentiate into another lineage. And DC is really dictated by the production of a cytokine and the expression of a cytokine receptor. It's unclear how you acquire those cytokine receptor and ability to respond to ligand. And there is potentially a stochastic effect and some specific niche in the bone marrow. This is still uh, research which is ongoing, but this is what's happening for the DC lineage. These DC-restricted precursors start to differentiate into DC1 or pre-DC1 and pre-DC2 in the bone marrow. They circulate in the blood in their pre-DC1 and DC2 stage. They arrive in the tissue and they differentiate even during homeostasis into DC1 and DC2. This is homeostasis in inflamed stitching. There is then now a lot of inflammation and that differentiation into uh, <clears throat> In fact, myeloid cells is a little bit complex. So myeloid progenitors, monocyte, and dendritic cell-restricted precursors all can differentiate into a dendritic cell-like cells in, uh, uh, in, in, in this inflammatory setting. And the cells that we now have, in addition to the homeostatic one that I just described, are called DC3. And these are like DC that differentiate into in this inflammatory setting. When you look at the molecular program of DC1, DC2, and DC3, they are very distinct. And this is why I think we should uh, understand their contribution, the different contribution of this of, of, of these compartments separately and uh, into to any type of outcome, disease outcome. So that's the dendritic cell. So it's quite simple. And the reason why sometimes it's complex is because we uh, uh, somehow mix a molecular state of a DC with a subset. A subset is a cell that has a specific lineage origin, right? They come. So you know, I'm a hematologist by training, by clinical training, and an oncologist. So I studied hematopoiesis quite a bit. And it's been extremely useful to integrate, and this is what I meant about the history of macrophage, integrate that hematopoiesis background in immunology, right? And it's really that at the interface of these two fields that I, I have made, you know, the, the discoveries, this understand, this realization that you understanding what the cells come from matters in terms of functionality. So it's very important to know that a subset refers to a cell that had a very specific mm -hmm. origin. That subset can acquire many different molecular states. 
right, in response to different type of injury. But those molecular states should not be uh, called subsets. And sometimes this is a mistake that is being made in the literature, and 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 therefore you know it may appear you know as more complex than it really is, right? And and the way we we all define you know these different subsets by using uh, fate mapping models of, of progenitors so that we know what we are talking about and this is how we know that it's a molecular state of that particular subset because of this fate mapping strategy. Now we have used exactly the same type of strategy to look at macrophages. So macrophage is even more interesting because <clears throat> macrophage were thought to all macrophage in fact ontogeny work has been done in the context of inflammation. Right. And 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 before understanding inflammation, that's what I tell immunologists all the time: is that study homeostasis, because then it's much easier to understand inflammation if you know exactly how the tissue should look like in terms of cellular composition, molecular composition, cellular interaction. When things don't go well, you know you know you you know what what's pathogenic and uh, and what's homeostatic, right? So in macrophages, you know, the, 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 all the study that I was looking at, so I was quite interested in understanding how these cells, you know, as the hematologists as the cells, different shapes, where are they localized, how they uh, interact with T cells, because I was interested in their antigen presenting role in the, in the context of cancer. I was in fact sent to do a PhD on, on DC vaccine. I did something very different. Uh, and so I was very interested in in understanding the the, the 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 origin of macrophage before understanding how they contribute to tumor immunity. And what I realized at that time, so I was Stanford, and that uh, um, there was really very little data on homeostasis. Right, all the data that established the role, the contribution of monocytes to macrophages was done in the context of inflammatory setting. So using a lot of gene mapping uh, models, what we realize, if in fact, initially parabiosis model, this is a model where mice are attached at the, at, the, at the joint and at the, well, they are attached surgically, a little bit cool, but we, we try to minimize the pain that is associated with this, um, uh, with, with the surgery and with the experimentation. So th these parabiotic mice, when you attach them, they start to share the same blood circulation. And if we now use with uh, uh, mice that have different tracers in the hematopoietic compartment, for example, congenic mice that express different allele of CD45, you can then distinguish blood cells from one parabiont and, and, and the other. And this is a way for to, to that enables the tracing of the physiological turnover of hematop or physiological differentiation of circulating precursors to, uh, let's say, immune cells in tissue. So you talked a lot about DCs, but for macrophages, I think I want to make it really clear that we realize that they come from multiple places now. And I think that's one of your very first discoveries that, you know, kind of put you on the scene. Can you talk a little bit about what we now understand? Because we used to think that all macrophages just came from the bone marrow and floated through, and that's not true. And so what is true? Right. So so now I, the current understanding is that monocyte, a macrophage comes to bone marrow only during inflammation. This is where monocytes are released in excess from the bone marrow, come to the tissue, differentiate into what we now define as monocyte-derived macrophages. In the steady state, all tissue are populated by macrophages that arise from 
precursors uh, that originate during the embryonic setting, infiltrate the tissue during embryogenesis, and then uh, stay there for a very prolonged period of time and contribute to this population of tissue-resident macrophage. So these tissue-resident macrophage have a very important role in the maintenance of tissue integrity, in addition to their immune function role, whereas the monocyte-derived macrophage, we believe, are, have mostly an immune role. They are come here to help clear a threat, and this is their main function. And this is why it's going to be very important to understand the contribution of these two compartments to a disease outcome, the outcome of any injury. And this is a big focus of my lab right now. And this resident macrophages, they also generate niches and they renew themselves. They, they can maintain their numbers throughout the, life, the whole life of the individual. No, absolutely. This is, very, this is what's very interesting. And many of us are still trying to understand how they do that. But 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 you mentioned niche, and that's very important because they are, and I think this is what's very important to understand, because they populate the tissue very early during development, they occupy this very specific niche, and they are imprinted by that microenvironment. And they're imprinted so that they serve a function, right, that has been really shaped by needs, right? And understanding that, I think, is going to really uh, continue to lead to many discovery in terms of, of tissue homeostasis, tissue repair, tissue regeneration. There is still much to discover. So this may not be known yet, but have we been able to experimentally in a mouse or whatever deplete all of the tissue resident macrophages in a single tissue and then see how it restores? Have we figured that out yet? Or if it can, or do you have to have some 1% that survive whatever you're doing? to restore them back? Uh, that's a good question. So, you know, we've done that quite a bit. In fact, it was a big focus of my lab for many years when we started. You can deplete them. And in fact, they repopulate themselves, but you never deplete them completely. Uh, so the belief now is that they repopulate, the few ones that, that remains are repopulated. The exact mechanism of, of repopulation is still being understood. We still have to, I think, continue to build knowledge there. So within this category, we have a lot of cells. So we have alveolar macrophages. We got microglia as well would be in this category. Uh, Langerhans cells. So all these cells that we study maybe in our general immunology, they're all part of this special group of cells. Um, maybe we can talk about a specific case because your lab in a more recent uh, work you actually study, for example, lung macrophages in the context of COVID-19. Maybe how, in the, could you maybe talk us through it a little bit through this contribution and in the lens of, of, of our understanding of, for, in this case, I would assume lung macrophages or alveolar macrophages, how do they help against the disease or maybe even more importantly to prevent the excessive damage that is characteristic of COVID? Yeah. Well, that was a fascinating study, I have to say, difficult one because it was uh, during the pandemic, but very interesting. So what we realized is that uh, patients were dying of inflammation. All of us saw that quite early, and, and there was this category of patients that were very susceptible right, to, to this disease. Patients who, in fact, have uh, some type of vascular damage or chronic inflammation, you know, including patients with uh, uh, patients with diabetes, patients with uh, hypertension, age. Age was the really the, the biggest risk factor for, for severe COVID disease and obesity. 
You know, so there was a group of, of and, and, and really infant who usually are also quite susceptible to novel viral infections were not really at risk for severe COVID-19. So very quickly, we started to think that there is a repair issue. There is an inability to really repair damage that, uh, um, that is probably stronger in infant. There may be other reasons for that, but that's, that was our hypothesis when we started this work. And what we and 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 maybe in those patients that older patients and patients with this chronic inflammation, something that was wrong in their tissue already. And what we find in this study is that indeed we believe that a, a damaged alveolar macrophage pool, which is the tissue resident macrophages, which are the first cells that also can sense damage, right? They, they sense, but the way, they, so they sense and they call for help. So they induce that first inflammatory response to bring other immune cells to come and help clear the damage. That, uh, uh, that type of response is, is going to set the tone for any type of inflammatory lesion that you're gonna have, right? So if you do not have that first alert, right? The virus can propagate a little bit more than it should be and, and maybe that creating more inflammation and more damage. So that may have been the case. But the second thing that, that alveolar macrophages do, so they, they call for help very early, right? So this is why you can contain the threat uh, uh, faster if you have a strong tissue-resident macrophage pool. The second thing that they do is they also modulate inflammation. They know how to modulate it. They can respond to toll signal, to microbial signal, but they know also how to contain inflammation. So the, the risk that you have when you don't have a strong macrophage, a tissue-resistant macrophage pools, we believe is that you have excessive inflammation. And this is something we are starting to be very interested in, especially in the context of aging, where we think that this tissue-resistant macrophage pool across different tissue is probably altered. And we are trying to understand whether this alteration is potentially contributing to chronic inflammation that we see in older patients. So you think this aging question in aging tissue resident macrophages is partially due to the fact that these cells can age? So what I, what I mean by this is obviously the bone marrow ages too, but it's a continually renewed, renewed pool, right? So at baseline, yeah, the, the stem cells in your marrow are, are going to age. And so your cells will be a little older, but you get new macrophages and new blood cells all the time but the tissue resonant ones are only going to change over when something bad happens. And so they're going to be subjected to kind of long-term senescent aging in a way that a bone marrow derived macrophage won't. Do you think that's part of this unique physiology here that they, they age kind of like our muscles and, you know, our organs do in a way? Yeah. So it's possible, you know, it's not, it has not been studied. And so one of the questions that we have is how they age indeed. And um, and using this gene tracer that I introduced earlier, we are looking at these two compartments of monocyte-derived macrophages and tissue-related macrophages and whether they age differently because our hematopoietic stem cells also age, right? So it is possible that that monocyte-derived macrophage compartment is also altered. 
But however, you know, the one thing that we are exploring is that these tissue resistant macrophage are in these niches that we discussed. And one of their role is to constantly clear damaged cells, right? For microglia, for example, it's very clear that their role in clearing this damaged neuron is key, right? There is, uh, you know, this fantastic data in the Alzheimer field that most of the susceptible genes for Alzheimer disease are in fact the genes that reside in this macrophage compartment genes that regulate, in fact, macrophage function. So a disruptive macrophage function is, is, is significantly associated with a risk, an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. So our belief is this is true everywhere, is that somehow the ability to clear this, this uh, damaged cells, which is uh, part of, of homeostasis of, of any type of tissue is very important. And this is likely disrupted during aging. I have just to touch on a, one more more area of research of your lab in the context. I think you mentioned also we're talking about the lung. So we know, so now we talked about macrophages and uh, resident macrophages in the context of infection. What about the uh, kind of the opposite situation in the context of more of cancer? And we know that it is a little bit, uh, macrophages have been associated with Worse prognosis, best pro better prognosis. Mostly, I think mostly worse prognosis of anti-inflammatory macrophages. So, what what is our maybe in a, kind of a high view? What is our understanding of the role of these resident cells in yeah. cancer? Yeah. Okay, so that's a very important question, right? And and this is a big focus of my lab because I am a hematologist oncologist by training. So this is this is why I went to research to understand how we can harness that immune microenvironment to treat cancer. Big focus is, is these macrophages. And I think it's going to be, and there is still a lot, a lot to discover. And, um, and we need to think about macrophage, in fact, in a dynamic manner, because so one finding that we had and we published recently is that the tissue resident macrophages are the first to interact with cancer cells because they populate the tissue. So when the cells have become malignant, the, they start to produce very quickly some inflammatory molecule. And you see this tissue-related macrophage going close to cancer. We've in fact followed using again, the gene tracing strategy that we've been using for years, macrophage interaction with cancer during tumor progression. So, and they also interact with the stroma. So these macrophages are going to build a niche for the tumor to progress. At some point during tumor progression, these tissue-related macrophages are excluded from the tumor lesions, and there is a big recruitment of monocyte-derived macrophages. So we are starting to understand the contribution of this compartment, contribution to early invasiveness, contribution to progression, contribution to metastasis. And now we are just starting some work with a fantastic cancer biologist called Julio Aguirre-Giso, uh, who is looking also at dormancy. You know, cells, it's micrometastasis that take place in a tissue and what he sees in collaboration with uh, uh, my group and with tools that we generated is that the dormant cells are always surrounded by macrophages. So it's possible that macrophages decide whether a metastasis is going to be quiet and never reactivated or that, you know, the, the, that, that the tumor cells is going to grow. There is so much to, to, to still uncover, and I'm encouraging you know, the, those interested in the subject 
at least in, in cancer immunology, to really focus on, on macrophages. This is where the next set of big targets against cancer are going to come from. So to kind of to, to shift gears a little bit and talk more about scientific work broadly, so maybe the segue is big, big targets, big things. Um, you're also the president of the International Union of Immunological Sciences. Can you tell us a little bit about that union, especially for our American audience who may not know of it? Yes, so I just became the president of the Immunology Societies, International Immunology Societies, uh, uh, a week ago, and and um, it's a big it's a big job. There is eighty seven societies that uh, that are part of of this union, sixty thousand member, and the uh, and really one of of, of the goal is to uh, share knowledge between all these different societies, what right? exposed the less exposed. But one thing that I've said in my address recently um, to all uh, the, the, the president of the different societies is that, so, so we have, you know, the, the Western world, you know, societies that are very active, you know, quite rich. Uh, now there is clear path in, in, in the clinic. So the, we are booming, right? And there is the developing world, which are, uh, you know, less able to do this type of, of inquiries and, and scientific endeavor that we do. And, and yes, we have to expose them, but also selfishly, we can learn from these countries so much, right? Because they are more exposed to infectious disease or infectious cancer. And, and, and therefore, even if we um, are not interested in, in you know, scientific uh, sharing, and we, we should really engage so that we learn you know, from all these different pathologies that are still endemic in many of these countries. So I'm hoping that what we'll be doing is really trying to build endeavor across different countries that will continue to help us understand the regulation of the human immune system. You know, in Africa, for example, there are patients that have these chronic parasitic diseases, but they live well, they, they, uh, they, you know, they don't, they have, no symptoms and and uh, and then and you may have a patient in the western world with the same infection and could you know die from it or have a, a very severe inflammatory disease so how do immune systems cope with this chronic infection is a big question right and the answering are in some of these patients that live in this country so i'm looking forward to interacting with many of my colleagues in in the developing world so you are the 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 union is now meeting right in 2023. You are actually going all the way to South Africa for your con for the congress, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's probably a nice um, effort to bring the international immunology to. I would say the global south a little bit. I come from Argentina, so it's also sometimes it's hard, especially immunology being such a complex expensive, if I would say, uh, discipline to research, I think it's important to try to bring it more in a more uh, kind of equal way, right? Absolutely. So so this Immunology Congress is the largest immunology event. Uh, so it happens every three years and has never been held in, in Africa, right? So it would be the first time that uh, that that this meeting will gather right in in Africa, and it's the first time that we meet after COVID also. So it's a big statement for us, right? And and yes, it's expensive to go to South Africa, but it has been extremely expensive from African trainees and 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 faculty to come to our meeting also. So it's very important that 
really we all take up the challenge and, and go there and meet our colleagues and and discuss about global science and and closing the the the, the healthcare gap you know between all um between continent right we have so much to discuss and i'm 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 so happy that um that we are meeting in africa the challenge is that i'm hoping that people will come right and will subsidize their trainees to come because we want faculty will come they're very excited about about south africa we want the trainees the american trainees the european trainees to go to africa and meet with african trainees so we are going to try to fundraise uh, for african trainees first and also for european and american and south american and asian also to go there uh, but i'm very excited about uh, about the meetings we will talk science but we will also talk policies. We will also talk about uh, uh, young immunologies. We need to think about how we can also change the way uh, the, this career of ours, which is too long and too tedious, is developing. Uh, and I'm hoping that there will be a lot of young immunologists. In fact, we will have several debates, uh, uh, and 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 we hope to hear from young immunologists about the way how, what they think about the, this career. Uh, in in basic science or or in in translational science or or as a physician scientist, how can we shape it differently? Right, uh, and so there will be many opportunities to talk about. Um, we will talk about publishing, the future of publishing. We will talk about misinformation. Um, we will talk. We will have debates on also very interesting questions: tissue resident immune cells versus circulating immune cells beyond macrophages. It's going to be a super fun meeting. So can you remind our listeners, when is the meeting planned for? Yes. So the meeting is November 27 to December 2nd, uh, 2023 in Cape Town. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers, uh, uh, several Nobel laureates, uh, faculty that are super engaging. Uh, we will have speakers from all over the world, including from Argentina. <laughs> um, several uh, speakers also from from Africa uh, that that are joining us. We will have the Minister of Health of Africa talking to of South Africa talking to us. Also, many editors will be there. And so I'm hoping that you guys will also join us and do a series of podcasts there. I'm renewing. I'm getting my passports renewed for all types of stuff early next year. <laughs> it takes forever in the U.S. to do it, so I have to start. Uh, I have my passport always ready. Well, I, you can't, if, but they take it from you when you renew it in the U.S. So to renew oh. it, I have to turn it in. Really? I take a period of time. I can't travel. Oh, so please renew it as soon as possible. <laughs> That's very exciting. There's so much to learn from everywhere in the world. Which brings me to our last question of the day. Uh, and I think I might have an idea of what your response would be. If you were not a very successful, inspiring scientist as you are, what do you think you would have done with your life? Well, before going to science, I went I went to medicine, but uh, I hesitated. Well, I hesitated between different things. But you know, I come from Algeria. We didn't say it. Usually, I'm always asked where I'm from. So Algeria, North Africa, and I left my country when I was 18 because of uh, many political troubles there. So I was raised in a place where. I, I wished uh, governments were thinking differently about uh, different type of uh, policies. And so I 
I uh, hesitated between joining, you know, uh, thinking about political science. I I, I, I suppose I, I didn't do it because I wasn't sure whether political science was rigorous enough. You know, I wanted to have to understand the technicality of it. Uh, but but I am interested in, I would have been interested in thinking globally and, and strategically of how we lead a country, right? And um, and I'm hoping that uh, this is what I will do in, in my new role as a president is be strategic. You know, sometimes what we forget, right, when we become scientists is that um, uh, we are consumed by the process. I need to write a grant. I need to write a paper. And we forget what the mission is, right? The mission is transform medicine, no matter of, at, at least for immunologists. And, uh, um, and, and in the country, it's the same thing that politicians forget that the mission is to improve the life of their citizen. It's not the process of being a politician. So I suppose uh, I have uh, uh, used uh, the same um, line of thought in, in the way I approach medicine is have an impact. We need to have an impact. It's much more fun, in fact, to have an impact in life uh, than, than to think of how I can survive in the job of mine. Right? And I'm encouraging, in fact, and my students in, in the institute that I lead at Sinai know that I'm encouraging uh, scientists to, to go into politics because we always use, you know, we have this data-driven uh, uh, mind, right? The rationale, we use a rationale to, for any decision that we take. So we have the perfect training to, in fact, contribute to society. In fact, we should remove this word politician. We need to contribute. We are servants. We are civil servants. And we need to contribute to improving our society. And I think scientists will do that very well. I have to agree with you. That's, our, that's a great way of putting it. Well, we, we had a German uh, chancellor who was a scientist, but... I was going to point out that you you live in what's almost a small country or any chance you're going to run for mayor of New York then? <laughs> no, no, because I became addicted to science. See, uh, and um, also I have, uh, I think I need to, I will have to improve my accent a bit more before running. Fair, fair. No. New York, they will judge you that way, I suppose. <laughs> well, um, as long as you don't sound like you're from New Jersey, I think you'll be fine. <laughs> I'm fine. Sorry, New Jersey. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I've never lived there. Right. <laughs> That's how I hear it goes. That, 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 that is a true uh, stereotype set. <laughs> all right. Uh, like all thing, good things, it must fortunately end on the podcast. But thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at adaminopodcast or by email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>